So if you've been with us for the last uh, several weeks, we've been in a sermon series uh, uh, talking about this idea of practice. And it's been a four-week journey so far, this week being week number four um, of our Lenten journey of what does it mean to practice reconciliation. Uh, And so in the first uh, couple of weeks, we heard from Pete talking about this idea of how do we practice communion and then how do we practice formation. And last week, uh, we have the privilege of hearing from Rick on uh, the conversation of what does it mean to practice community as a church body. And so this morning, uh, we come to the practice of hospitality. Um, and the question I want to ask real quick before we jump in is just kind of that idea of why are we talking about practice? Uh, and for most of us, uh, if you're anything like me, having grown up in the church, uh, the label that I was handed and that I often handed to other people when describing what is it that I believe, uh, I say I'm a Christian uh, or a follower of Jesus even. But very rarely do we say I'm a practicing Christian or a practicing follower of Jesus. And I love placing that word practice ahead of that because it really emphasizes this idea that, man, I don't have this all figured out. I don't have it together. I need to practice. And so With this series, we're talking about this idea of what does it mean to practice following Jesus. Uh, And we're we're looking at these six practices in particular because we're talking about how do we practice reconciliation with God? How do we practice reconciliation with ourselves? How do we practice reconciliation with each other? And then finally with the creation uh, that we're in the midst of. And so our hope in talking about practice is that we can then go forth and practice and hopefully be formed into followers of Jesus. And so this morning we'll be in the passage of Luke, as Mel read this morning. Uh, And as we come to this scripture, there's three main questions that I want us to ask this morning. Three big questions that I think are universal to all of humanity, that I think in a sense kind of sum up what does it mean, this idea of being human. And so when we look at these three questions, we're asking ourselves, who is God? Sometimes even, is there a God? But if there is a God, who is God? And then second, who are we? And finally, what is our purpose? So at the end of this conversation this morning, the hope is that at least we can take a stab at answering uh, those questions. Before we jump in to the scripture, I want to tell you a story to kind of set up the tone or kind of the vibe, the sense of feeling that we get within this story in Luke. And I'm going to tell you a story uh, about myself that's a little bit awkward. Um, so get ready. Uh, for those of you who, who know me well enough to know uh, that we tend to talk a lot about Enneagram, I'm an Enneagram 2, okay? So I'm a helper or a giver, uh, sometimes called the befriender. And basically all that means is that I really like helping people. Sounds so noble, right? It's like, man, that guy, he is a generous man. And yet... If you boil it all down, I help people so that they like me, right? If somebody helps you, then you like them. And if you like me, then chances are you're not going to hurt me, right? So I'm trying to avoid pain and shame, and I do that by helping you. So really, when you boil it all down as a two, as a helper, as an unhealthy version of that, I'm helping you like me. Not so noble, right? And so when I got married, uh, a little over a decade ago, uh, to my wife, Lindsay, she learned very quickly what this meant. And it often took the form, especially in conversational settings uh, or relational settings, where I tend to be very agreeable. I tend to go with the flow. I tend to not want to upset the order. And then even beyond that, I tend to want to be the one that kind of seems like, oh, he knows it all. Or man, he's got a lot of really good answers. He's really smart. I like to be really helpful in the midst of conversation. And the real key there is that if you're paying attention, what I'm actually doing oftentimes is I'm lying. And so early in our marriage, Lindsay and I are standing with some friends and we're talking uh, about movies. And I love movies. And so uh, I immediately get excited. My ears perk up. And one of my friends says, hey, have you guys seen the new Iron Man film? And immediately I go, oh yeah, so good, right? And Lindsay, standing right next to me, turns and says, really? When did you see that without me? And so we're standing there with our friends, and literally, like, cat got the tongue, right? Cold sweat, pit in the stomach, 
total shame and embarrassment. With not like, I can't lie. Like, of course I haven't seen Iron Man. It just flat out lied to all my friends. To be liked, to, to make them think I'm cool or with it or hip or whatever it was. Um, and so I just said, I, I guess I haven't seen it. So we get home later that night, and of course, I turn to Lindsay and I say, how dare you embarrass me in front of my friends like that? And she goes, well, if you quit lying, then I don't have to call you out. <laughs> Love her. She is so good. Loves the truth. Loves that. But how blessed, how privileged am I, honestly, to have a wife who loves me enough that she's willing to sacrifice my reputation in order to teach me to not lie. And what do we call this? We call this confrontation. We call this calling someone out. We call this, in the, in the kind of scripture or biblical sense, the language we use is rebuke. And that's what is happening this morning in this story in Luke when we jump into it. I want you guys, as we're reading through this, as we're discussing it, that tension, right, of that moment that Lindsay called me out, that awkward elephant in the room, What's going to happen next? This is really awkward. That's, that's the sense, the feeling in the midst of this. And so we're going to open in Luke chapter 14. We're going to start by reading the first uh, two verses and have them up here on the screen. It says, One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. There in front of him was a man suffering from abnormal swelling of his body. Couple things that immediately jump out to us. Jesus is going to a meal at a prominent Pharisee's house, one of the religious leaders of the day. This is a high class event, okay? And he's being watched. Awkward. He's being watched. Second thing to note this is a Sabbath. And the Sabbath was given to the Jewish people as a what? A day of rest, a day where you don't do any work, a day where you relax, a day where you rest. And the third thing that's interesting to note there is that they're going to this high-class event at a Pharisee's house, okay, where Jesus is being watched on a Sabbath, and just out of the blue, there happens to be a sick man there. I find that odd. I find that, like, no, he's only there unless we've invited him to be there. You don't just show up to somebody's house as someone who's ill, kind of unannounced, unexpected. That would be really awkward. And so I think this story opens with this tension, with this awkwardness. And I think the reality here that we're seeing is the Pharisees are essentially setting a trap for Jesus. They're essentially saying, Jesus, we know that your reputation as a healer precedes you. We know even that you have healed on the Sabbath previously. And so we're going to invite this man who's sick, who's ailing, who needs healing, and we're going to drop him on the doorstep. And we're going to invite you to this space, and we're going to watch you in this moment. And I love what Jesus does. Let's read on in verses 3 through 6. So Jesus asked the Pharisees and experts in the law, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. So taking hold of the man, he healed him. And sent him on his way. Then he asked them, if one of you has a child or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull it out? And they had nothing to say. I almost feel like Jesus is saying, like modern day translation for me, is Jesus is looking at these guys, the Pharisees, and he's looking at this man, he's going, are you guys going to heal him? Or should I, should I go ahead and do that? Right? It's just the awkward space of like, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Does anybody else heal on the Sabbath? Am I the only one that goes like, these guys are creating laws and legalism for the sake of trapping Jesus? And Jesus said, should I heal or not? And so he heals him. He does the very thing the Pharisees want him to do. He steps into the trap which I love. But then he completely disarms the trap because he heals the man. He sends him on his way. And then he turns to the Pharisees and says, hey, if your kid falls into a well, 
Are you seriously telling me right now that you're not going to pull him out? If your animal falls into a well, if something is in need of care or rescue, are you seriously telling me right now that you're not going to come to the aid? Jesus is essentially putting the Pharisees on blast right here. He's going, what is more righteous, guys? Is it more righteous that I follow the law, that I refrain from healing this man and don't work and let him suffer? Or is it more righteous for me to heal him? for me to restore him back to wholeness and send him on his way. And the other piece I love here is that they, they had nothing to say. It was kind of like that moment where Jesus calls their bluff and then they all kind of turn to each other like, okay, now what? That didn't work. Let's read on. Luke 14, verse seven. When he noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. Now, real quick, just to remind ourselves, a parable is essentially a short story, often an allegorical story, okay? Something that is told for the sake of contrasting and comparing two things. And so even when we see in the Greek, when we break it down, the word parable, parabolo, para meaning to compare or to contrast, and then balo meaning to see. So we're comparing and contrasting two things for the sake of seeing what is right, what is true. So instead of just answering the Pharisees and saying, what you did was wrong, here's what's right, Jesus tells them a story. Verses 8 through 11. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor. For a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this person your seat. Then humiliated you will have to take the least important place. So picture the scene. Jesus is invited to this dinner, heals a man, sends him on his way. So now it's time to eat. Like, what do we do next? Time to eat and sit down at the table. And I can just picture Jesus kind of stepping back, standing back, and watching all of these religious leaders, all of these social elite, literally arguing, bumping shoulders, fighting over who's going to sit where, who's going to sit at the highest place of the table next to the host. And Jesus calls them out. He literally looks at the guests and says, why are you fighting so hard to elevate yourselves, to try to take the best seat? Really what you ought to be doing is humbling yourself, sit at the lowest seat and trust that if your host wants to elevate you, they will. The guests are essentially saying, what I want is to sit at the best seat in the house. I want to elevate my status. I want to be noticed. I want to be made great at this table, at this dinner. And Jesus calls it out. What I love about Jesus in these first couple of sections as he's calling them out, he shows mercy. Because he just doesn't say what you're doing is wrong. Here's what you should be doing. He teaches them. He's trying to love them by teaching them and reorienting their understanding of what does it mean to host a meal? What does it mean to show up at a meal? What does it mean to take a seat at the table? Jesus is educating these religious leaders on how to sit at a dinner. Moving on. Verses 12 through 14. Then Jesus said to his host, When you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. So picture the room. Jesus gets done rebuking the guests and they're squabbling over who's going to sit where and he immediately turns to the host of the meal and rebukes him and says, you invited all of the wrong people to this meal. This is not the point of meals. The guy that you originally invited, the sick man, 
for the sake of the trap. That's who this table should be surrounded with. Those who actually need to eat this food. Those who actually need care. Those who actually need love. Now, I don't think Jesus is saying here, don't ever invite friends or family or neighbors to a meal. I think what Jesus is saying is, don't always invite friends and family and neighbors to a meal. Invite those who actually need to be fed. And once again, Jesus explains his rebuke. He shows mercy. He's telling the host, hosting is not about elevating yourself. It's not about, it it is about serving those who are in need. And so just for the sake of a quick recap here, essentially what I think we're reading here is this is the hospitality of the Pharisees. Host meals with agendas, right? The reason we're gonna have this dinner is to trap Jesus. So you guys all come around, I'll invite this sick guy and we're all gonna be witness to this. The Pharisees attend meals for the sake of benefiting their ego. If I show up at this table, if I sit at a certain seat, if I can get just a little bit higher than last time, then maybe people will see me as bigger, as better, as more important. And then finally, Pharisees host meals for the sake of benefiting their own ego, of building themselves up as the host. And what's interesting here is that within each rebuke, Jesus is rebuking the self-righteous nature. First of the meal, he calls out the whole point of the meal and rebukes the self-righteousness of the meal. Then he rebukes the self-righteousness of the guests. And finally, he rebukes the self-righteousness of the host. Now with scripture, we always read this, right? And we go, yeah, but that was written like 2,000 years ago. Surely, surely in 2018, we've moved on. We're not like that, right? Well, this week I was uh, spending some time on the old Google. It's still Google, right? It's still the main thing we're using. And uh, I just looked up modern hospitality. What does it mean to host a party in 2018? How do we do that, right? Many of us don't know how to host parties, so how do I host a party? And so I found this article that simply says 10 techniques for throwing a great house party. Perfect, that's what we're talking about, right? Great house party. So there's, there's 10 techniques and they all have a little explanation and I'm not gonna read every explanation, but a few of them are just so good that I have to share with you guys this morning. So number one, how to throw a great house party in 2018. Invite your neighbors. That's a good start, right? Don't just warn them that things could get loud. That won't do much to appease them. Instead, tell your neighbors that you'd love for them to join your little shindig. Hopefully they understand that this means please make arrangements to be out of your place at this time or don't call the police when it gets loud because I've given you a fair warning. They probably won't show up, but it's still important to make them feel special by telling them you'd love to have them. So good. Number two, be selective with your guest list. A major factor in the success or failure of your party depends on who you choose to invite. While inviting the friends you know like to have a good time is helpful, your guest list also needs to include a set of key players that will guarantee things run smoothly. Do you have a friend that's a complete neat freak? Make sure you send him an invite as things are bound to get messy and you need someone there to make sure folks are using coasters. (laughs) Your homie that works as a bouncer needs to be on the list too, just in case people get too crazy and you need reinforcements. Also plan on inviting your friend that doesn't drink as you'll need someone sober to handle the knocks on your door from arriving guests, annoyed neighbors, and possibly the police. List all of the jobs that you don't want to do at your party and then invite guests to fill those positions. Put some of your friends to work and your primary responsibility will be to act as the best host around. Number three, lie about the start time. To keep a steady flow of people at your party and have most of your guests there at a particular time, you have to give people different start and end times. Tell your time-conscious friends to show up at 10 p.m. if that's the time you know you'll be ready. And then tell your friends who are prone to tardiness to show up at 8 p.m. if you want the party to start at 10 p.m. Lock your roommate's doors. It's a good idea. 
Make sure your food and drink are on point. Have a good playlist. Number seven, make introductions. Another one that sounds like they started so good. Sounds good. Unless you were very strategic when planning your guest list, chances are your guests will be strangers to each other. Be a good host and make introductions so that you don't find yourself babysitting your socially awkward friends for the entire duration of your party. Start conversations between the guests you know share common interests. Then slowly pull away from the conversation and allow them to fend for themselves. Number eight, keep playing cards on deck. One can only take a small amount of standing around and having disingenuous conversation before they find an excuse to bail. Finally, the last two, devise an exit strategy for your guests. And number 10, stay sober. So for me, it seems like this story that we're reading about, about the hospitality of the Pharisees and Jesus confronting and rebuking why they throw a party, who they invite, how they sit at that party, and why the host is there at all, is fairly applicable to us in 2018, 2,000 years later. So let's read on. In Luke 14, verse 15, uh, I love this moment right here. Let's read it. When one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Now I'll be honest, when I read this the first time and pretty much every time I read it, the first image that comes into my mind is the dilly dilly guy from the Bud Light commercial, right? Like it's this super awkward, like this guy's gonna get sent to the dungeon and the guy just raises his toast, dilly dilly. And then everybody else responds, dilly dilly. <laughs> I don't really think that's what's happening right here, but I just can't get it out of my head. I think this guy's pushing the envelope a step further. I think he's, he's been kind of receiving the rebuke of Jesus and he's been hearing this and he's been, he's been asking himself, what's the question I can ask Jesus that will really reveal his true colors? And so he proposes this toast, which is a familiar toast. In Isaiah 25, 6, we see that this was a common toast of the day. On this mountain, the Lord God Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. So this was a common toast of the day that you would say at any party. You would raise your glass and you would say, blessed are all who will eat in the kingdom of God. And the proper response would have been to raise your glass and say the same thing. I think what this guy is doing here is he's pressing Jesus and he's saying, okay, Jesus, you've picked apart our meal. You've picked apart how we do hospitality. Hospitality. What is a meal, what does a party look like in your kingdom? You talk a lot about this kingdom of God thing. You tell us what this looks like. Almost like a dare. And so we come to the passage that Mel read to begin this. And let's read through it one more time. And Jesus replied to this man who gave the toast. A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, come for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I have just bought a field and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I have just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but there is still room. Then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. Jesus is painting a picture of hospitality in the kingdom of God. And it looks radically different 
than everything these guys would have expected. Radically different. One of my favorite images that I've come across for kind of depicting this image of who's going to be at the banquet table of, heb of heaven is from an artist named Micah Bornet. And he actually gave this spoken word about a year ago here at Antioch. Uh, and he's gone on to put it into his new album and whatnot. But the picture that he's describing is essentially answering this question of who will dine at the kingdom of God. So we got it on video here. And I invite you guys, certainly listen to the words, but even take a minute and close your eyes through it and try to picture what it is that Micah's describing. One of my favorite stories in the Bible is when Jesus is hanging out with a group of people that uh, <clears throat> some thought he shouldn't be hanging out with because they were really broken people, really messed up people, really sinful people. And he started getting criticism for it. And they were thinking, hey, well, Jesus, if you're supposed to be this holy person, why are you hanging out with these people that are so messed up? And I love his response. Jesus said, the doctor is for the sick. Healthy people don't need a doctor. This is the whole reason I came. <laughs> and that's encouraging to me. And I hope it's encouraging to any one of you who might think I'm too messed up for God to love me. There's no such thing as being too sick for the doctor. <laughs> That's why the doctor exists. And this poem is a reminder of that. It's about heaven and uh, it's called Freak Show. <clears throat> Never dismiss the visions of mad men. Wisdom can be gathered from anyone who sees what others cannot. Drunk men tell no tales. Poets cannot lie. Poets cannot lie because we do not divide fact from fiction. There's often more truth in our fantasy worlds and metaphors than human courts where liars swear to speak honestly in the name of laws they break. In the name of gods they disobey. The prayers of the proud will never reach heaven, but God hears the slurred words of the stumbling prophets, and all will be cursed who mock them. It is not an easy task to plead with the world, to grieve for the world, especially since God often speaks through those most broken. The picture we paint in our minds is a far cry from the reality of heaven. When the saints go marching in, it will not be a parade of the almost perfect. God does not reserve grace for those who only need a little bit. The healthy are in no need of a doctor. The healer is for the sick. Heaven will be a freak show. Promiscuous young men will embrace the virgin priests who molested them, and their hearts will both be pure. How amazing is grace. The street corner preacher will be greeted by thousands of people she thought were not listening. Thank you for enduring the times we mocked you. Your sidewalk sermons are why we know God. How amazing is grace. Aborted children will tug the spotless robes of young women and say, Hello, mother, I'm so glad to finally meet you. The former master will see the lashed back of his no longer slave and say, You taught me the love of the Savior. The suicide bomber who prayed for forgiveness during the millisecond between pressing the detonator and standing before the throne of God. The guilty thief hanging next to Jesus on the cross. The madman who spoke to invisible beings will stand between Michael and Gabriel with a grin as wide as an angel's wingspan and say, I knew I wasn't crazy. 
The missus and the mistress, the victim and the rapist, the foreign and the racist, the bullies and the geeks, all those who somewhere along the way believed, whose sins were forgiven and strength was given to love their enemies. So many we swore there is no way in hell we would see them in heaven. But they will be there. We will be there with a song on our lips and our eyes full of faith. And we'll sing, how amazing is grace. I love Micah's depiction of what that banquet table of heaven will be like, a freak show. And I think the awkwardness that we feel even in listening to that and the comparing and contrasting of some of those roles is a similar awkwardness that the Pharisees were experiencing in the midst of this story with Jesus. But what Jesus is doing here is painting a picture of his kingdom and he's answering those three questions that we posed at the very beginning of this conversation. And he starts by answering Question one, who is God? The picture we get in this story is a host. A certain man created a banquet and invited many. God is a yearning host. Greg Thompson says it like this. In the beginning, God was... And in his being, he was and is three, the Trinity, a relationship of eternal calling and response of participation in the hosting of perfect love. The very act of creation is in itself an act of invitation. Why did God create the world? Because he desired to. We exist because of God's yearning desire to host us. If God is not understood primarily fundamentally, as a yearning host, then there can be no understanding of a theology of hospitality. God is a yearning host. C.S. Lewis has a quote that I love because again, it describes God as this host, but I love it too because there's this awkward tension in the midst of it. And he says, God who needs nothing, loves into existence holy superfluous creatures in order that he may love and perfect them. He creates the universe already foreseeing, or should we say seeing, there are no tenses in God. The buzzing cloud of flies about the cross, the flayed back pressed against the uneven stake, the nails driven through the mesial nerves, the repeated incipient suffocation as the body droops, the repented torture of back and arms as it is time after time for breath's sake hitched up. If I may dare the biological image, God is a host who deliberately creates his own parasites, causes us to be that we may exploit and take advantage of him. Herein is love. This is the diagram of love himself, the inventor of all loves. Now, I bet this morning you didn't come in thinking you were going to be compared to a parasite. But I didn't say it. Lewis did. But I think he's right. If God truly is a host, a yearning host, then our only hope is that we might be parasitic in our attachment to him. That we might see God as the very host, as the very flesh that we feed on, that we require for sustenance, for life. And this picture of God as yearning host that Jesus is offering in this story is incredibly confrontational for the Pharisees. This is one of those moments when the parable becomes very disorienting. This is confusing. This isn't the God that I've been handed. Because primarily, the Pharisees' understanding of God was one of judge. And so they modeled their lives after that. They became then those who judge. If God is judge and we are to reflect God, then it ought to be our task to carry out judgment for the world. But Jesus is confronting this. 
And the reality is God does judge. Throughout scripture, we see God judge people and nation and tribes and situations. Even in this story, he judges those who deny his banquet. And so what we see God judging is we see God judging that which obstructs his hospitality. He is a yearning host who will not be denied. And so there's some good questions that come from that, such as, am I right before God? Will I be found innocent? Not terrible questions to be asking, and yet this isn't fundamentally who God is. The second reality this confronts, I would argue, is probably our primary understanding of God, which we see pictured in the New Testament in the person of Jesus, God as healer. Right? Jesus was known for healing. That's how this story began. A sick man was brought before him with the expectation that Jesus would do what? Jesus would heal him. And so we often picture God as the great and mighty healer, as the great doctor, so to speak. And this is true. God does heal, which is good because we are in need of a healer. And yet healing is not fundamentally what God is about. The questions that come up in the midst of that, what must I do to be healed? Is it faith? Is it works? How do I earn my healing? Not terrible questions to be asking, helpful questions to be asking, but the problem with both God as judge and God as healer is that the primary focus is on self. What must I do to be vindicated, to be found innocent? What must I do to be transformed, to be made whole. And this is wrong. The focus should not be on us. The focus is on God. And so God, in this picture, in Jesus' story of what does it mean to be at the banquet table in the kingdom of heaven, the host is God the Father as a yearning host. And if we were created for the sake of experiencing his hospitality, then it stands to reason that we, humanity, are his desired guests. This is the question to who are we? What does it mean to be human? At the deep core, who am I? How do I view and understand myself? And Jesus is saying, we are God's desired guests. sit with that for a minute. This is the primary lens through which we have to view ourselves, through which Jesus is inviting us to view ourselves. Our wounds, our brokenness, our shame, our baggage, while it might obscure our identity, it does not change our identity. We are first and foremost Desired guests of the Father. Which leads to the second major confrontation in this story where the Pharisees would have been very disoriented because the logical understanding of one of these feasts is that you don't refuse the invitation. And yet we see all three men refuse the invitation, which would have just been mind-blowing because for these guys in this day, there was no refrigeration, right? If you're going to throw a feast, you do what we do today. You send to save the date, which is supposed to shut down the calendar, clear it all off, keep this day open, reserved, set apart, open. There's going to be a feast and you are invited. The expectation is not just that you show up and attend. The expectation is that you make sure you're sitting waiting for the servant to come to say, hey, the feast is ready, come, eat. And yet all three of these men come up with excuses why they're too busy to attend the feast. Essentially why they are too important to attend the feast. Now we can pick apart each one of their excuses, but for me the important reality here is that they didn't refuse this invitation out of ignorance. They weren't surprised by it. They refused this invitation out of a sense of self-righteousness. 
The oxen I purchased are too important. The land I bought is too important. The relationship I just entered into is too important. Even though I know this day is supposed to be set apart to attend your feast, please excuse me. This would have been incredibly shameful for the host. Imagine your own self throwing a party, laying a lavish feast out on a table, and then sitting and waiting with anticipation, with hope, for all of your invited guests to arrive. And then nobody shows up. And the food goes to waste. And the wine spoils. And all of that hard work was for naught. What a shameful experience. This is what these men were all trying to put on the host. Shame. So the question is, how should they have responded? And Charles Spurgeon has this quote that I think captures the heart of how they ought to have responded. He says, the knowledge of God is the great hope of sinners. Oh, if you knew him better, you would fly to him. If you understood how gracious he is, you would seek him. If you could have any idea of his holiness, you would loathe your self-righteousness. If you knew anything of his power, you would not venture to contend with him. If you knew anything of his grace, you would not hesitate to yield yourself to him. These men should have run to the party. They should have been anxiously awaiting the servant. Knocked on the door, they should have flung it open and said, I'm there. I've cleared my calendar. I'm available. I'm ready. But they all alike clung to their sense of self-righteousness. Which in the end of this story is what God judges. And the punishment is they will not taste the banquet. And so in order to avoid the shame, Jesus continues the story and says, my, my master, this yearning host will not be shamed. My table will be full. My food will be eaten and enjoyed and my wine will be drunk. This will be a feast of all feasts. And so he invites the poor and the lame and the outcast and the crippled. Come, all you who what? What unites their reality? They're all strangers in the land. They have no home. They have no place. They have no family. They have no food. They have no social standing. These are people that have been stripped of their self-righteousness by the realities of this world, whatever that be. It is apparent, it is obvious for them to try to be self-righteous would be frivolous. These are humble people who are deeply, deeply in need of grace. And so they readily accept the invitation. And this is what I propose is the purpose of humanity. This is what Jesus is saying humans ought to be about. And it's simply put this, to receive the invitation of God. That's it. That's all they had to do. Receive the invitation. Respond to the invite. Show up to the party. There was no ask that they prepare a dish. This wasn't a potluck. There was no ask that they change their clothes first. This is a, hey, the party's ready now. Come on in. There was nothing they needed to do to attend this feast other than receive the invitation and respond to the party. God is not concerned with our appearance. He's not concerned with what we can potentially bring to his table. He's not concerned with how we're dressed. The picture Jesus is giving us here is that the host has taken care of everything. All we have to do is show up to the meal. The definition of hospitality, the classic like 
Webster's definition. In the Greek, it's phylloxena. But translated for us, it simply means friend to the stranger. Hospitality, true hospitality, is intended for strangers. As we define it. Strangers require hospitality. They must be received. They require grace. This is who God is desiring to host. This is the picture that we see of those who end up attending the feast. Those who would require hospitality, who would value the hospitality. And so this question becomes, what does it look like for us to receive God's invitation? To see ourselves for what we actually are. People who are hungry in need of a meal. People who are lost in need of a rescuer. Sinners in need of grace. If God's great act as yearning host is one of hospitality, an invitation to the banquet table of heaven, then our great act as his desired guests is to receive his invitation. So what does it look like for us to receive this invitation as a collective community? What does it look like if we lay aside our busy schedules, our preoccupations, our calendars? I'm as guilty as any. My wife and I share nine Google calendars. It's madness. That's how busy we are as a culture. We've planned it all out. We're busy people. And yet the story that Jesus is saying here is that I am looking for the people who are available, who are willing to say yes to the invitation who are willing to accept the grace that is offered. And for me, I love that in this story, Jesus gives us a picture of what this actually looks like. For someone to receive the invitation, to receive that grace, and then how that transforms them. And I believe that's in the picture that we get of the gathering servant. This gathering servant humbly obeys the master. He goes out into the town. And he sends the invitations. And upon denial, he immediately goes and gathers up the poor and lame and crippled of the city. Because it says in verse 22 that when the master hears of the refusals, he gets angry and he says, go into the city and gather all of those who are there who are poor and lame and blind and crippled. And the servant says what to that? He said, sir, that's already been done. And there's still more room. I love that. It's already been done. This gathering servant knows the heart of his master so well that when he is refused, he goes into the city and gathers all these people knowing how joyful his master will be that the feast will not be denied. Hospitality is the vocational work of all faithful disciples of Jesus. And it's carried out in response to the generous hospitality of our gracious God. In the book, Making Room, Christine Pohl has this quote, which I think captures the heart of what we're talking about here. She says, a life of hospitality begins in worship with a recognition of God's grace and generosity. Hospitality is not first a duty and responsibility. It is first a response of love and gratitude for God's love and welcome to us. The lives of Jesus' disciples, of the gathering servant, are marked by a fearlessness and a faithfulness to seek out the poor, the sick, the outcast, and invite them to find rest at the banquet table of God. The faithful servant is the extension of the master's love. This is the work of hospitality, to be an extension of love. And so this morning, the temptation is to be like the gathering servant, to run out into the streets of Bend, of Redmond, of Lapine, of Madras, of wherever we're coming from around Central Oregon, to run out into our streets and to work really hard at being hospitable, to invite more people in, to host more parties, to say hi to more strangers, all good things. But I think before that, what Jesus is saying is have you yourself accepted this invitation. The true art of hospitality is the ability to receive 
And the picture that God is giving us is one who yearns, who desires to receive us. And so the obedient act for us is to be received. This is the true picture of hospitality that Jesus is giving us. So I think rather than go and do more, go and work harder, I think the real challenge, if we're honest with ourselves, if I'm honest with myself, the real challenge is to shut down the schedule, is to say no to the busyness, is to become available, is to say yes to that cup of coffee with the friend who's been trying to get a hold of you, is to say yes to that invitation to dinner with those people that you kind of know, so you're afraid it's going to be a little bit awkward, so you're not quite sure. But allow yourself to be received by their invitation into their home. Practice being received. Say yes to the guest who offers to bring something to dinner. I'm as guilty of that as anyone. I want to control the table. I want it all to taste amazing. But you want to bring something? Absolutely. Bring whatever you have. Say yes to being received. Say no to your to-do list and say yes to sitting down with God and recognizing that you are his desired guest and his invitation is to be received. For me, this is our challenge this week to meditate on that, to sit with that, to let that sink down deep into our souls, to saturate our very being. If you leave with nothing else this morning, this is what I want us to remember. And let's stand. We're about to come to the communion table. God's table, his invitation to us. It's already prepared. You don't have to bring anything to it. You're invited to receive it. And so this morning, if we remember nothing else, Remember this, God is a yearning host. We are his desired guests. And the work of hospitality, the true work of hospitality is to be received. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning honestly, bringing our full selves before you to your table with the hope of laying down our self-righteousness, with the hope of laying down the masks that we carry, the burdens that we carry, the pressure of trying to make it in this world. We all lay all that at your feet and we invite you to receive us as our generous host who deeply knows and loves us. Father, receive us this morning. We pray this thing in Jesus' name through the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen.